You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Cassandra Ka is the USA Today bestselling author of Nothing But Blackened Teeth and the Bram Stoker Award winner Breakable Things. Other notable works of theirs are The Salt Grows Heavy and the British Fantasy Award and Locust Award finalist Hammer on Bone. Ka's work can be found in places like the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Year's Best Science Fiction, and fantasy and four.com. Ka is also the co-author of The Dead Take the A-Train, co-written with best-selling author Richard Cadry. Thank you for joining me, Cassandra. Thank you so much for having me. One thing I noticed about your novellas is in the first John Person novella, the person bringing the problem to the detective is a child who's experiencing some really unusual phenomenon with his father. And in the the latest work, um, The Salt Grows Heavy, that's based on a Hans Christian Andersen story, sort of. And in Nothing But Black and Teeth, you have a lot of Japanese folklore. And I'm wondering, could you talk about, did you have a, a childhood experience that involved um, experiencing a, a lot of fantasy or reading a lot of fantasy and does that inform your fiction writing now oh uh definitely i think it's also partially because i grew up in malaysia and malaysia is a deeply multicultural place um every one of the ethnicities and small groups that exist they all have their own mythology they all have their own legends ghost stories and what have you not to mention that culturally speaking uh malaysia has the most public holidays, I think, in the world because everyone's festivals get celebrated. And so I kind of grew up in an environment where evolution was definitely taught in our classrooms, but everyone was also like, yeah, so we know this and this and this and this and this group does this tradition, that group does that tradition. And when you're steeped in all of that, you kind of gravitate towards fantasy and horror. Um, There's also the fact that my parents really want to keep keep me busy because I was an absolutely intolerable child. So they made the mistake of letting me read a lot. And I basically exhausted entire libraries and bookstores and dear God, my poor mother's budget. I recall one day where she was like, all right, you have this much money and we will get this many books. And I walked home with everything, a stack of 10 books. And now uh, I actually sort of thought myself to read. So I never thought myself to read slow. I am a speed reader. And I think four days later, I went up to my mom and I was like, I am done with these books. Could I have more? And she was like, no, you have a book, man. Anyway, so yes, there was a lot of science fiction and fantasy growing up, but also culturally speaking, I've always been inclined towards myth because of uh, where I grew up. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting and powerful about your work is that <clears throat> you combine a uh, uh, talent for describing you know the 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 toll that violence and horror and and the various monsters and critters that you create 
uh, on the human body, you describe it really well. It's almost like you've, you know, attended a lot of autopsies or, or paid, <laughs> paid uh, close attention. So talk about that. Just, is that the case? I was a very macabre child. I was very, 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 very interested in growing up to be a forensic specialist. I was one of those kids who would not flinch away from roadkill or discovering a dead thing in our yard. And would often go to investigate and stare. Uh, unfortunately, my mother told me very clearly when it was time for college, no daughter of mine will be playing with corpses. So I went into computer engineering for a while. And I went into horror writing. And I've actually watched a lot of autopsies. There are a lot of universities and public institutions that um, publicize um, dissections and stuff. So... I have a comprehensive firsthand knowledge if video watching counts, and I'm just endlessly fascinated by the human body. Uh, I think the other reason for that is I'm a hypochondriac in real life. And um, because I'm severely anxious and have like PTSD and stuff, I will hyperfixate on the thing and start worrying. So if my anxiety gets kicked off, very often it ends up related to my medical anxiety. So the hypochondria shows up, et cetera, et cetera. And it just becomes a dark spiral. But what I found worked is if I have enough medical knowledge of creepy crawly things that happen in the body, I can actually outreason my hypochondria because I'm like, yes, I do understand this one thing is a rare symptom of X, but because we have not exhibited the 900 other things that would indicate it is X, it is about 0.005% chance this is correct, and then the hypochondria goes away. So lots of autopsies, lots of willing study of medical stuff. You know, uh, combining that, all that kind of, you know, gore that you write about so well might just seem kind of mindless and dumb, but what you do so amazingly well is combine that flair for description with a flair for understanding the underlying emotional content that, you know, accompanies that kind of violence from, you know, the, the plight of the child in Hammers on Bone and the romantic triangles, quadrangles, pentangles <laughs> in uh, nothing but black and teeth. And you do such a good job. And I'm especially thinking here of nothing but black and teeth. Uh, of conveying just this emotional minefield that it doesn't it hardly matters that the people might be torn limb from limb because emotionally they are just going after one another in a way that it's beyond embarrassing it's kind of terrifying oh i think with nothing but black and teeth specifically i wanted to capture that feeling I think we all get once we get into our mid-30s or so and we realize we have friends that we're only friends with because we were friends with them when we were kids or like teens. And they've just kind of evolved into the worst possible people. And you look at them and you're like, I wouldn't be friends with this person right now, but I still talk to them because I've known them for 20 years. And so with nothing but black and teeth, I wanted to capture that. And um, this is, I think, a phenomenon that happens with unfortunate regularity. When people feel anonymous and that they won't be taken accountable for their actions, for example, if they were all nipping at each other in 
a location where no one can actually track what you're doing, cruelty gets amplified. Uh, for example, if you look at uh, stories about sleep, sleep no more, an immersive theater thing that happens in New York, uh, people get emboldened by the fact they are told to wire white masks and become anonymous. They get a little bit too brave. They harass the performers that way. And so I wanted to pull that into nothing but black and teeth, that sense of what will humanity humans do if they think they won't be caught and they already hate the people around them. And sort of to like touch on the other things you've talked about, I think horror is a very vulnerable genre. It is one of the, like, well, not even like comedy, like love, I guess. It is a universal feeling. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, whether you're born poor or rich, whether you're old or young. There are certain fundamental fears that we all understand. Um, body horror, for example, we are all, I think, instinctively afraid of the fact that we don't actually know what's happening under the skin. I think most of us run around life going like, the brain and all you see, that is the whole of it. And we like to pretend that we're kind of solid on the inside, things aren't squishing around. But then everyone goes to the doctor and no matter how comfortable you are with the doctor, no matter how regular you are with a medical checkup, there's a teeny tiny voice in the back of your head that goes, what if today something wrong happens and you tense? And I think when you work with horror, it becomes very easy to look at that and to look at people with a kind of tenderness and go, this is where we're all afraid. And the supernatural elements and the gore and everything else is almost to create a background for people where they're willing to address those fears and vulnerabilities because they're like, actually, I'm scared of the other thing. But no, it's always a story about human beings. And I think at least that's how I approach horror in my own writing. Well, that to me is exactly a perfectly exemplary of, of the power of the horror and any of the speculative fiction genres because they allow you to take feelings and thoughts that you mm -hmm. could never think about yourself or don't want to think about and certainly won't want to talk to others. And you can take those and externalize them and turn them into demons into monsters yep. and those monsters can do whatever they want because they're not actually you feeling those feelings they're monsters <laughs> on the loose and which is in effect what all humans are we are uh i think humanity is c capable of monstrosity that no one is ever willing to discuss openly the same way we are capable of just enormous tenderness and compassion and kindness. We're creatures of extremes, I guess. I, I really like that, you know, you mentioned it, that we're capable of tenderness and you use that word twice. And I think that that is really the ultimate power of, of your work is that, especially in something like The Soul Grows Heavy, which is wall the wall extremely strange <laughs> and, and just over the top in terms of what many people might consider you know bodily fluids etc yet there's a, a a real tenderness that underlies that story and i think that that makes you know 
it, it makes some of the stuff that, that might seem off-putting rather gentle and joyous in a weird way. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. So, uh, you know, let's talk about that story because the book includes the, the story the salt grows heavy and then there's a, a story afterward mm-hmm. that is told in a very different style. And, and so the, the first one is reminds me quite a bit now of the writing of Mervyn Peak. Are you familiar with him? I am not actually. Uh, he wrote uh, some books called Gormenghast, and, and yes, I know Gormenghast. I just never call his name often. Oh, okay. Uh, he's the stories are your story, especially the salt goes heavy. Uh, have that same kind of rich imagination of the fantastic. It's like you've seen um, all these places in your mind. Uh, talk about dreaming up the original scenario behind that story it takes a, a while for the reader to grok exactly what's going on and by then you're caught up in the emotions of the characters and they're sweet <laughs> they are they're a cute couple <laughs> i love them so it described the 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 characters the uh the, the um plague doctor and the the main character who is might be what we would call a mermaid but not like any mermaid that most of us have ever imagined only you could come up with such a being (laughs) thank you very much for doing so um with the mermaid so the story at the back of the book is actually uh what kicked off everything and with it uh, there were two origin points. One was hilariously nine gag that old like disseminator weird little memes and comic strips and stuff. And I recall distinctly one day reading comic strip from College Humor that said, "What if Ariel laid eggs?" And there was a panel of Ariel in a bathtub, and like her lower half was censored out, and Eric just looking on with this like utter terror in his face. And I was like, "I need to take it." to like it's a logical conclusion because and because i am who i am it ended up an incredibly horrific story uh but from there the book sorry the short story ended with our mermaid opening the window and allowing her children to swarm out into the kingdom and i originally had wanted to write about how there are a lot of powerful women in previous generations, especially, who are incredibly quiet about who they were, about their anger, who just raised strong children instead. Uh, Nevo's books cover that beautifully, especially the first one. And I wanted to embody some of that because I am an immigrant kid. Like My parents are immigrants to Malaysia. And they tolerated so much and dealt with so much in their lives and told me I had to be fiercer than them, stronger than them over and over again. And I remember wanting to put that into the short story. But by the end of it, when the mermaid was just standing there watching her daughters wreck the devastation and revenge she wanted, something shifted, I think. I wanted her to have her own story. There is no reason that a woman's tale should end after she becomes a mother and technically, you know, her kids leave the nest. We will ignore the fact that the nest is the corpse of her husband after her children ate him alive. 
but it is still a mess, metaphorically. And so I wanted to give her the story that she deserved. She had done her duty. She had suffered her trauma. Now she was going to have the adventure that she wanted. Though again, because I am me, it is a very specific kind of adventure that showed up. And the plague doctor, I think there are some elements of them that involve how I've seen people regard other queer people. Um, especially in more conservative regions, they, there is a terror when they see a queer person. There is a nervousness about what a queer person represents to the community, to society. It is incredibly incorrect. And you start having to learn how to define your own humanity if you're raised in a place where your very identity is you know, demonized. And the plague mo- doctor motif, I think, kind of showed up. Because plague doctors were very inaccurately perceived by some communities in the past. If they saw, let's say, if a small village sees a plague doctor show up, they're like, oh, no, they have brought the plague, or this is a sign the plague is here. When really, the plague doctors just kind of wandering. They're trying to help everybody. Like, they have nothing to do with whatever is going on. And there were some links to that in my head when I designed the two. As for the environment itself, um, I spent a lot of time in Quebec and even more time in Scandinavia. And I have a deep love for um, the woods in the middle of the deep snow. There is just something utterly eerie about them, but also just something very beautiful. You know, I want, one of the things, too, that makes your work so powerful is um, the the prose on a sentence by sentence, word by word level. It's really beautiful, and I must admit that as I read uh, the Salt Grows Heavy, I was reading it electronically because mm-hmm. I'm old and I can turn up the print <laughs> to a size my eyes can see. Uh, but I found myself encountering words, a lot of words I didn't know. But as I read them, I kind of grokked what you were trying to say. I mean, it, the, the language just spoke to me in ways that, that language, musically, I guess, the way music speaks to you without, uh, you know, an immediate prose translation. But as I went through, I said, okay, Rick, you're going to learn something out of this. So I would, you know, conveniently, electronically, you can just say, look this word up. Mm-hmm. And every time uh, my sense of what the word had meant matched the, the definition. And I thought that was a really unusual reading experience for me because usually if you see a word you don't know, you simply don't know it. But you were able to, in the flow of your prose and through using a lot, I think deliberately choosing to use a lot of unusual and antiquated words to describe the plague doctor <laughs> in this place, uh, you really conveyed that. Were, were those word choices on purpose? And, and did you know those words? Or did you have to look them up and insert them later? Um, I think I spent about four years of my life in th- when I was younger, I think in my teens, entirely obsessed with the dictionary. So I would read it through from back to front over and over and over. Um, and just such a delight because English isn't my first language. I think it's my third language. So I kind of approached this as somebody 
mining an unusual place for new things. In a way, English magpies words from a thousand different cultures, you know, because of the terrible history. I was just riveted. There were just so many things and so many perfect words for a perfect moment.、Uh, but to get more into that, so Robert McFarlane、uh, published a book quite a number of years ago called Landmarks, and in that book he wandered through, I think, five different topographical features like the mountains, the Arctic, the rivers, and the lakes, and so on and so forth. And in that book, he went out of his way to look for place names, things specific to the location,、um, words that would not be used by people outside of the region. And his explanation for this was: with every year, our dictionary starts losing words because people stop caring as much about nature. People stop being as invested in the mountain and the lake. And he. Put it so well. When we do that, we become disenchanted with the world. If a flock of birds is always a flock of birds and not a murmuration of swallows, our perception of everything flattens. And when we learn words, when we insist on having more words in a vocabulary than what everyone anticipates, we create a certain amount. Of beauty, both in our life and also in the environment around us, and it forces us to appreciate things. And one of my favorite words is actually "owl light," and it describes the very last light that you get in an evening before night comes. And every time I hear that word, I picture exactly that, exactly that—the terrain, an owl flitting through that dark, orangey glow as the sun collapses completely. So all of that, I think, came into play with the salt grows heavy, and I think that's why you had the experience that you did, because these words are intentional, because they are so much a part of our vocabulary. And I'm like, yes, this should go here, that should go here, and if they're a little bit antiquated, well, I did spend four years reading a dictionary. No one told me which words to focus on. I liked all of them. You know,、um, also too, beyond just the word choice. Your selection and your idea of how a story works and and what part comes where and what sentences go where is pretty unusual. And again, we'll look at your latest work, "The Salt Grows Heavy," because you published it in in a sense kind of backwards. With you pick up the book and you start reading it, and you are just going, "Oh my God, what the heck is this place?" And get lost in this wonderful world you create, and then at the end of the book, in in a, the sequel part, the story that you said is originally that was where it came from, we see you know things much more clearly, and it kind of brings the whole thing into focus, into really a tight, clean focus. You know, the first part <laughs> is is like a. a You know the murky part of a David Lynch or or、uh, <laughs> a Ridley Scott movie. You know when you know they're down in the hull of the alien ship or out, eat, race their heads out in his weird world, and, and the the second part's more like a crisp crisp look. So talk about your sense of how to tell a story. Um,、uh, in terms of that format thing, 
I will have to say I had nothing to do with it. That was an editorial decision by my editors. So all credit to them if it works. I'll blame on them as well if it doesn't work. But I, I personally think it works. <laughs> it works, yes. Um, in the sense of how I tell a story, I it's interesting. Very often when a story shows up, it manifests in my brain as flickers of imagery. I start becoming haunted almost by just whispers of the characters, fragments of the world they're living in. And once it really sinks its claws into me, I know it needs to be written because it essentially ends up an intrusive thought. I cannot do anything else. I cannot focus on anything else until the story, the novella, the book, what have you, is on paper because it will distract me from every other aspect of my life. So I write just in a fury when it happens and things just show up and occasionally I catch myself going, is this how that works? Huh. You know, um, I really like the, the John Persons book. And so I'm curious, A, are we going to see more of those? And B, those have an interesting format. They're a little crisper, I think, in terms of the the straightforwardness of the storytelling and the plot, certainly then the, the salt was heavy, and even in a sense of uh, the nothing but black and teeth, they're you know just a, a wonderful noir feel. You just, it's Dashiell Hammett, and I'm wondering Thank could you. You, could you talk about. Uh, supernaturalizing, uh, science-fictionizing the noir genre. It's definitely supernaturalizing. Uh, and I think it works for me in terms of doing it, like mashing both the genres together because noir operates on such strict ideas of what should happen. There is always this guy and there is always that guy. There's always a dame and she's always going to be like this. And so when you know the tropes, you know what to expect, at least you hope so. Then I think it's very similar to how the cosmic horror operates. Because cosmic horror says you have to get a grimoire and you have to do X, Y, and Z. Once you do that, you get a demon or you get to be safe from a demon. And the whole pleasure of cosmic horror sometimes is watching humanity try to maintain the, these little tropes and everything exploding. So like you can see why it was like, yeah, this will work together. Um, one thing too I noticed, <clears throat> hard not to notice, uh, you like to write at novella length. This is a really interesting format for many years. It was kind of discarded. I remember in the maybe early 90s, late 80s, there was a series of novellas, I think, uh, edited or helmed by Deborah Beale, Tad Williams' mm -hmm. wife, uh, that were, I thought, just wonderful. And they pulled a lot of great writers in there. Uh, Lucius Shepard, Greg Bear. I mean, those stories still ring in, in my head. Um, so talk about the choice to write at the novella length and also to not to put too fine a point upon it novella length is absolutely perfect for a movie adaptation and i can just <laughs> see you know the uh the you know toby hooper version of uh 
nothing but blackened teeth. <laughs> so talk about using that format. Um, I think part of it is because my back, I had a background in journalism. Like I ran away from computer engineering and ended up a tech and video game journalist for a certain part of my life. And so I'm used to writing in brief. And I think partially the reason I gravitate towards novellas as a whole is I also spent about 10 years of my life completely nomadic. So I was in a different country, in a different city, every three months of my life, just wandering around. Um, originally it was because um, I would get assignments and then it was because I didn't want to do 20 hours of flying back to Malaysia from the U.S. all in one week. I think I did that once. I flew to, from Malaysia to San Francisco and then I flew back all in the same weekend. I was like, I, I can't do this. I cannot sustain this much flying or I'm going to die. And the solution that I found was I would try to get an assignment somewhere, but closer so it'd be like New York to London and I would spend some time in London because since I'm there I might as well just chill for a bit and then I would follow my assignments and my route back to Malaysia and just broke up the insane flight uh, into small little chunks and even after I left journalism it just became a bit of a habit I knew how to do it I could sustain it um, financially because of the work I was doing I was very poor because most of my money went into truck travel and I was sleeping on friends couches for about 10 years uh, but that's that was my life and so novellas I feel are weirdly reflected of that period in that three months is not enough for you to understand a city it's not enough for you to grow roots develop a community do all the things that people do once they move somewhere and decide they're going to spend the rest of their lives there but it is long enough for you to get a feel of the city Kind of like dating a person for three months, you don't entirely know who they are, but you're starting to see snapshots and flashes. You're learning if you can love a thing or not. And novellas felt like an interesting way of capturing that. I like having readers stop by the squirrel for a little while, just long enough to love or hate the thing before they have to go. And when you go, if you spend the right amount of time there, you're always left thinking about a place. Is that restaurant that opened that you love successful? Do the, pe did the people you meet get to go do the things that they wanted to do? What happened to the big party that was going to take place the weekend after you were gone? Your brain flutters with curiosity. So that's why I like novellas. And that's why I write them. You know, uh, that's interesting because one of the things when I finished Nothing But Black and Teeth, I thought, I'd like to, you know, see what happens more at the house or at, at of, with these people. Uh, but speaking of, of, of that particular story, um, that's a wonderful haunted house story. Very unusual. Talk about the setting for that, which is in Japan. My cry yes, is, yes. Okay. Uh, uh, it, it, did you live in one of those houses? How did you research that? Because the, the, the house itself seems so so realistic and so finely detailed. Oh, I, again, I, I grew up in Malaysia, so every one of us had a ghost story. And much like the characters in the book, my friends and I, for a certain period, would break into abandoned buildings to investigate houses, see if we can find a ghost or not. No idea what would happen if we actually found a ghost that wanted to kill us, but we were young and very stupid. 
So I think a lot of the house um, came from that. Just those wanderings through big abandoned homes or like deserted hospitals and going, oh, this is going to be a terrible thing eventually. And because uh, horror is such a big thing in Southeast Asia, there was also just a lot of exposure to it through, you know, TV and stuff. Um, there were a lot of details in the house for nothing but black and teeth that never made it there. I had a good friend who gave me a lot of details and explanation of how Heian horse, uh, houses were made and how they were constructed. Um, but those had... Excuse me. Uh, explain more what you mean by a Heian house. Uh, I am probably mispronouncing it, but uh, the houses were in the Heian period of Japan's history. And I had someone consulting on the structure of it and what would make sense realistically. And once I had that, I started moving things around like, oh, this should not be there because it's from the wrong time period, et cetera, et cetera. But most of that got removed from the um, final manuscript because my editor was like, look, if the person does not have a background in this, there is no way they're going to be able to tell this is not working. And it's just going to be a really random factoid you highlight when there is no context. Okay, it is acceptable. You, you know, I, one of the things too is I love the variety of, you know, the Japanese folklore behind that story. It, it's really a, a fun rabbit hole. Once you start looking the, those cr critters up, it, you can just spend hours, if you're a monster hound like myself, uh, <laughs> looking for them. So talk about taking these folkloric uh, creatures and including the the blackening blackened teeth uh, of the you know, titular the Ohagura Bakari? yeah and you know turning them into characters because the the they do have a character which i think is an essential part of a truly uh, enjoyable monster mm -hmm. I think if you are capable of looking at even mythological creatures as something capable of personhood, it becomes easy enough to turn them into people. Um, though I think for a lot of uh, Western creatives, especially those who are raised in much older generations, and not by their era personally, because I feel like the West has this thing where it looks at the mythology of other countries and other nations and goes, well, that's fictional. Our big beard in the sky is not fictional, but those are fictional. Uh, those are what savages talk about. Those are what wild, feral people from the distant and inscrutable East believe in. And when you are bludgeoned by that, especially if you are not race, I think, an environment that allows you to interrogate that, you tend to treat them as bits, just cute little parts of the, you know, backdrop. And then it hollows out. And if you come from a culture where you are told, you know what, it's entirely possible that there are invisible spirits all around you. They're just leading your own life, so be nice. You start approaching things from a very different angle. And even then, I do not necessarily know if they feel sufficiently embodied and sufficiently respected by people from 
Japanese culture. Some people have said so, some others have thought it were a little bit flat. So even for me, even being based in Asia, it is always a learning process. Because culturally speaking, we always look at our background as foremost. And I think everyone is responsible for dismantling that. You know, um, given your upbringing, I'm wondering, have you ever had any experience uh, that you would consider reflected the presence uh, of the, you know, ineffable otherwise? Um, yes, actually, my whole family dealt with it. In the first house that we lived in, um, there was a tree on the street opposite where five different people hung themselves while we were living there. So not at the best place. And the memory that I have best is this once where, so a little bit of background. My father would tell us when we heard banging on the ceiling that it was just, you know, rat or the water pipes going and it's nothing else don't bother except houses in malaysia are made entirely of concrete so i don't know where a rat would be crawling but it was a good fiction to believe in but then one night i was cramming for a test and i heard the banging start on the ceiling it just pound 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 and it got so loud and i was so tired and so strung out from studying i looked up in frustration and i was like you need to keep it down. Uh, my parents are going to wake up and this is going to be terrible. And the banging immediately stopped. And I was like, oh, God, and ran upstairs. I didn't think too much of it until it started again one day. And my sister was sitting in the dining room and she was like, oh, God, there's the bag again. And I looked up half jokingly and I was like, yeah, just tell it to stop lightly and it will. And she looked up and went, would you please stop? I'm studying. And the noise stopped again. Then we both ran upstairs again. Uh, this continued until we left the house. And I remember talking to my mom about it. And my mom, my mom is a diehard atheist. She is, yeah, you can just toss my body into a trash compactor when I'm dead because I don't know why you would waste money on a funeral when you can save it instead because she's also utterly practical. So woman who is like that, who has never thought about the supernatural as anything but fiction, and is just generally too polite to, like, you know, argue about it. We tell her, she usually tell her stories of what we saw in the house, and her face goes pale. And I'm like, wow, what are you talking about? She was like, oh, God, you, you guys saw it, too. I never said anything because I didn't want to scare the two of you. And she related one story and only one story. Uh, my parents did not get along. They slept in separate bedrooms before their divorce. So one day my mom opened the door to her room and she saw my dad walking towards his. She calls out to him. He does not respond. And she gets progressively angry and angry. The more she calls him, the more he walks away. And he turns and walks into his room and just almost closes the door. Like they're just crack open. And she's about to grab the door handle and slam into his room and begin to fight of the century. As if she then hears my father's voice snarling up at her from the stairwell. Good, the fuck do you want? I was downstairs. She looks at my dad at the stairwell, looks at the door to his room, and without saying a single word, walks back into her room, slams the door shut, shut and locks it. And that was that. 
my sister and I have never been able to get us any other stories out of her. But again, this is an account from a woman who genuinely is like, just throw my body in a trash comeback. I have no attachment to that flesh. So she is not inclined towards believing any of this. Wow. You know, as a writer, you developed uh, John Person. We have two novellas. Do you see giving us more? Uh, I have one more John Person story I would like to write, but that will probably have to wait until I've done with every other single book I got to do first. Uh, and that brings me uh, to The Dead Take the A-Train. Uh, this is, I think, the first in the series, and you're co-authoring this with Richard Cadre. Uh, I recently yes, spoke with him. Uh, talk about making the decision to collaborate and also your first experience, as far as I know, uh, working in a longer form, writing a, a novel. Um, technically, I've done a novel for several work for hire novels, so to speak, but they're different. Uh, we thought it would be fun. He had an idea and I wanted to, fl- to like, help flesh it out. Richard is a lovely human being who acknowledges he might be a little bit too old to, you know, comfortably write a 30-year-old who is down on her luck. So it all came together and we started figuring out the writing process. Uh, It originally was us going like, okay, this is the outline. We're going to write one chapter each and keep going. And then I find out that Richard does want to contact the previous chapter before he can continue with his, whereas I was very indifferent. So that slowed us down a bit. And then we figured out one person should write the entirety of it. And then the other one will edit. And then the other one will do their touches to just kind of create a unified voice that isn't either of us, but both of us as well. And it was a fun process. Uh, Richard has more comprehensive understanding of recreational chemicals than I do. Because again, I grew up in Malaysia and Malaysia is known for ghost stories, great food, but also capital punishment if you make the mistake of bringing even like a tiny teaspoon of drugs into the borders. Uh, While growing up, I would run out of a room if I smelled weed out of sheer terror because I was like, oh God, if the police showed up, I am going to die. Uh, So for the book, uh, Julie is horribly cooked up and really into drugs. And I recall looking at Richard and going, I have no idea how any of this works. And he's like, I got you. And then there would be things. And there's no judgment. It's a delight, to be clear. And there'd be things where he'd be like, Okay, Julie says, I'll send for a car. And I'm like, nobody under the age of 50 says that. In fact, I'm not sure anyone under the age of 40 says that either. Just like, what is happening? And I'm like, I think she's just going to call an Uber. No one sends, just no sending for cars. And he'd be like, oh, okay. It was just a fun bit of like culture shock for both of us pushing back and forth and I think that created a really really good book because he was born in New York Um, I spent a lot of time in New York even before I moved there and we got to embody the city from a very metaphysical level could you talk about the influence of your work for Ubisoft and in the video game industry on your writing 
Absolutely nothing. That is the question that everyone asks, but the answer is it is completely and utterly unrelated. Uh, video game writing and fiction writing are entirely different enterprises because with video games, you are essentially supporting multiple departments in this creation of a fiction that the player has full access to the entirety of this world. They can go anywhere they want. They can do anything they want within the constraints of this environment. I said that's not true. If you really make a game like that, it has to be an MMO. It has to go through a lot of updates and a single player game is not going to pull it off. And all writing is to support this illusion. So you're writing crisply, you're writing cleanly, you are creating an experience for people. And when you do that, you have different word choices, you have different ideas of how the prose needs to work. And I think as well, when you're writing books, there's almost this covenant between the, actually any kind of linear media, there's this covenant between the creative and the audience. The creative says, this is the experience you're going to have. You're going to follow me across trigger pages. You're going to follow me across two hours of movie. And the audience goes, well, yes. And of course, there's always the risk that the audience will be like, I hate this journey and turn it off and toss the book into a bonfire. But you almost understand it as a guided singular path. Whereas with video games, it's more a question of the player going, ooh, I can fulfill this fantasy. And the video game goes, yes, yes, absolutely you can. But also look over here. We should be really invested in going in that direction. And that kind of three-dimensionality makes it very different from novels. The new book by Cassandra Ka is The Salt Grows Heavy. Thank you for joining me, Cassandra. Thank you so much for having me. That was so much fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.